What is the Pulmoni Dasi case and how did it impact debates on sexual consent in India? How were India's first child marriage laws aimed at protecting boys? And what led to the development of the field of sexology in India? Hi, this is Shishti, and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast, where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society, and culture. In this episode, we're taking you back to a conversation from April 2021, when we spoke to historian Dr. Ishita Pandey. To start off with, we wanted to ask you about... Um, these legal norms around age, which right now we take it for granted that there are legal norms around age for uh, regulating sexuality. But could you tell us about how they came into existence in India in particular? So as to your question about legal norms, you're absolutely right. We take these pretty much for granted. And it's not just laws about sexuality that we take for granted, but we have um, minimum ages prescribed for when you can drink, 25, when you can drive, 18, when you can marry, um, currently at 18, being revised to 21, etc. right? And we uh, think of these as uh, probably tried to um, aspects of maturity, right? Uh, and what the reason why I'm bringing up these different contexts is that uh, that allows you to see immediately how contextual and how arbitrary some of these age limitations are. Right. I mean, there's no reason why you should be able to not drink, but be able to drive. So we kind of already know, even though we take it for granted, we are able to see that these are uh, fairly arbitrary norms that we subscribe to. And these are prescribed to us by the law. Now, let's take that idea and try to think about child marriage laws, uh, age of consent laws, laws that govern sexuality that um you know, and with those, it's harder for us to think of those norms as arbitrary. And I try to explain why. Um, because we are so clear that something like child marriage is, we, 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 we are brought up to believe that it's a social evil. We know that it is, it leads to various forms of social and sexual exploitation of children. And that's when this arbitrariness argument becomes difficult for us to swallow, right? Um, so for the specific question you asked, so when did these legal norms come into existence? So there's a few different ways in which I can answer this question. One answer is that um, these minimum chrono uh, chronological ages, so chronological age being 14, 12, 18, right? These, were, um, these are something that were bestowed to us by colonial law. So if you look at the Indian Penal Code of 1860, they actually have various age stipulations and the age of consent at that time was set at 10. Some people will answer this question and say, actually, these um, norms around age pre-existed colonialism. And that if you look at Hindu shastras and his Hindu legal texts and Hindu injunctions on religious life, that there are certain age stipulations that you can find even there. Uh, so, for instance, um, they could argue that uh, there were approximate chronological ages given for when 
uh, Brahmins, for instance, could undergo the ceremony of investiture, which was lower than when uh, Kshatriyas would undergo it, right? So what I'm arguing in my book is that, yes, you can go back to pre-colonial times and find uh, sort of approximations of chronological ages. But what happens is with colonial law, uh, we get very specific age stipulations. And what happens in 1860, I already told you, is that the age stipulations. But the reason why sexuality is important to this story and what happens around debates around age of consent, particularly in 1891, when the age of consent is raised from 10 to 12, is that for the first time, debates about why certain chronological ages should be attached to um, uh, the age of sexual maturity become very important. So 12 becomes the age of consent because, as people argue then, is that 12 is when the body starts to mature. So what's interesting to me about these um, discussions, particularly in 1891, is that uh, age goes from being a legal convention that we can all agree on as it's fairly artificial to something that we come to see as attached intrinsically to the body, to nature, to morality, etc. So that's sort of one way of answering the question about the norms we take for legal, uh, the, the norms we take for granted around age, how did they come into existence? Um, I should also mention that um, one of the interesting things to think about is uh, questions of evidence as well. So if we are arguing that the law is the site uh, around which um, sort of age conventions become naturalized for us, um, it's interesting to think about how age is proved in courts as well. Uh, and here again, sort of the scrutiny of the body um, becomes very important. Taking off from that uh, very interesting ending point, um, I think that brings me to one case which was extremely controversial in colonial India. And for any student of modern history who studied this, uh, is a case which is very well known, which is the case of Hulmuni Dasi. How did um, the case of her rape reconstitute child marriage, and I'm quoting you here, as a socio-medical problem? with a substantial focus on the child-wife's body. And what were the problems with this kind of discourse? Uh, so Pulmoni's Dasi's case uh, is um, a case that involved uh, a young um, child-wife um, between 10 to 12 years of age who was raped to death on her quote-unquote, wedding night, according to the legal sources. Uh, and the case has been very important because it was taken up as one of the prime uh, exemplars of what was the problem with child marriages, right, in India, and why there was a need to raise the age of consent. Um, and, uh, and again, your uh, listeners might be interested in knowing that there was no direct intervention into the problem of child marriage in the 1890s. So raising the age of consent was an indirect way in which um, sexuality, that, that child wives could be protected from sex within marriages, right? 
So, so the reason why this case was very important is because in that historical context, it was widely discussed. So social reformers pointed to this case as a sort of heinous example of what could happen with child marriages and the need to raise the age of consent. It's become very important to our discussions in history, because if you are interested in questions of age of consent and age of marriage, you will see that this case comes up repeatedly uh, when we write about these questions. Um, so the reason why I am particularly interested in the case is um, what happens at this time is this obsessive focus on Pulmoni's body itself. So her body then becomes the site to understand how, how old precisely Pulmoni was when she died. What were the signs of maturity uh, on her body? What kind of violence uh, had been uh, enacted on her body by her adult husband? So, um, so while the latter set of questions makes a lot of sense when we're talking about rape, right? We want to determine what kind of violence had had been, you know, enacted on her body. What was equally interesting is that uh, her precise age uh, and the evidence of age that could be seen, had she attained puberty or not, uh, what was the size of her breasts, what was the patterns of hair growth on her body. And these really sort of disturbing details were brought up repeatedly. Um, and what was happening at this time is, and, and these discussions were not taking place only to determine uh, the form of violence or the scale of violence that had been visited upon her, but to actually try and figure out what are the signs of childhood and what are the signs of maturity and therefore of adulthood on the body? Um, so the reason why I talk about the constitution of child marriage as a socio-medical problem is because this excessive sort of scrutiny of the body, the medicalized gaze that comes to fall on the body is fascinating because it's not tied up any longer only to questions of social justice um, right or to pro to protection, but it is about um, trying to determine with absolute certainty what the signs of childhood are in a body. Right. Um, so, and for me, the the problem is precisely that. Right. So it should not matter if somebody is, you know, 11, 12, 13, even 18. Right. What concerns us here is the is the history of violence or what should ethically concern us here is the history of violence right um but what becomes interesting is that because of this particular repulsion we have for sexual violence against children right that it becomes important and it became important then and it is important to us now to 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 have a body be legible as that of a child and i think that sort of constraints and circumscribes the problem of gender justice, which is what I write about in the book as well, right? That um, our obsession with child protection is something that actually narrows down how we imagine gender justice rather than allow us to have more capacious understandings of what gender justice could look like. Um, and I also try to think about how this uh, constitution of child marriage as a socio-medical problem naturalizes the child in a way that's actually problematic for discourses of child protection. Because uh, it not only sort of narrows down how we think of women's rights, 
uh, it actually makes the child a foil um, for our understanding of rights and therefore actually ends up robbing the child figure of um, aspects of, you know, for lack of a better term, agency uh, and a more um, sort of capacious understanding again in their case as to what uh, is possible in times of protection for women and children. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's so interesting. And like you said, it's something that we see echoes of even today. I think the way in which you examine bodies in court and, and the way in which that's presented as evidence and also more broadly, how we understand when is someone a child who needs protection and when do they cross over from that? It's, it's such a arbitrary and interesting dist- distinction that we make. At that point in time, child marriage wasn't illegal. And finally, we do see the Child Marriage Restraint Act getting passed in 1929. Um, And you've looked at a very interesting aspect of the debates and discussions leading up to this, which is the arguments around protecting boys and boyhood. So could you tell us a little bit about um, how these arguments around boys and boyhood become important um, in the passage of the Child Marriage Restraint Act? And were similar concerns expressed about protecting girls? Because in our times, of course, as you know, right, uh, the problem of child marriage, and as we discuss it, is quite centrally figured on the girl child, right? How does child marriage affect the girl child and her education, her sexual exploitation, etc.? So what was surprising to me when I started researching the Child Marriage Act of 1929, which again has mostly been written about as a problem of women's social reform, is the extent to which social reformers were concerned with the figure of the boy child. So some of the laws that preceded the Child Marriage Restraint Act of 1929 that you just talked about and which has became, become the template uh, which, has, um, which we have used to um, sort of for our subsequent child marriages law, uh, laws in India, uh, was that uh, in these earlier laws, um, and some of these are provincial and local laws that I write about, a minimum age for boys is prescribed, but no corresponding minimum age for girls, um, which is which is which is to us kind of mind blowing because how do you tackle the problem of child marriage or without um, thinking about the girl? Uh, so it was not so it was these laws, but I also uh, discovered in reading um, social reformist novels that often the tragic figure of the boy child who had been married off. Uh, below a certain age was sort of presented as as the poignant sort of victim figure in some of these Hindi novels uh, from the 1920s and 30s. Um, I've read for my book, Medical Texts, to see how, you know, outside of the domain of the law, how people were thinking of the problem of child marriage. So in medical texts and in sexological texts in particular, again, the boy was very important to the discussions. So there were discussions of how excessive sexuality harmed the vitality of the young boy slash adolescent male and that the and the harmful consequences that could therefore be seen in, to the national future if these boys and young men were not protected from the ravages that um, child marriage or youthful marriage bring. So the concern was social reformist, uh, the concern for the protection of boys, 
it was a nationalist concern or a you know a racialized highly racialized concern as to what was ha- going to happen to the future of the race if these boys uh, were not protected um there were concerns expressed about the education of boys uh and also the health of edu- the health of individual boys as well was a matter of concern um and so the second part of your question was similar concerns expressed about protecting girls um what is interesting is that they were um but to me what's interesting is that these concerns were expressed first about boys right because that's not how we usually see it and that um the concerns expressed about girls were also different in a certain way right so the the concern for um the the sexual protection of girls was something that was coming to being as i've already expressed in the late 19th century uh but uh, with the boys you could see uh, concerns being expressed that were not so um explicitly explored yet which is the concern for the education etc right and that comes a little bit later um so i don't know if i've quite answered your question but i think what's interesting to me is to think of how even the problem of child marriage is seen as problematic uh, so to speak for different reasons in the 1920s when the first sort of set of interventions to abolish it uh, come into existence uh, and they are quite distinct from the way we see child marriage as a problem in uh, you know in later times in the 1950s and the 70s and in the present absolutely and i think that's really interesting to actually look back and think about how that shifted and um i think also like you pointed out to just think about uh you know where the concerns were coming for, from and what were concerns expressed about which i think till today in a lot of the discourse it's not about the child or the woman's the girl child or the woman's rights but it's more about what she represents as like a figure of societal pride or like you know indicator of a society how progressive a society is so raising the age of marriage and other scholars have pointed out too right is about signaling a society's modernity right so does the age of 15 uh, the age of 18 does and especially the shift that from the age of 18 as the minimum age of marriage to the age of 21 what are the real economic social consequences of that right do we really need to raise this age of marriage and some scholars feminist scholars have suggested that this um this the protection for girls becomes a sort of way of signaling the nation's developmentalist agenda the nation's modernity the nation's progress and that's what is being signaled there um it also and and the concern for the protection of boys likewise if i can go back to the previous question was also tied up with other sort of national concerns that made sense at that point of time right uh, we're talking about colonialism we're thinking of the future of the national youth it also um and and in going back and thinking of the ways in which boy protection versus girl protection was thought of at that time we can also think of uh, patriarchy itself as something that is about um generational you know about generation uh and it's not only about gender and sexuality right so age and generation play a major role um in terms of how we understand patriarchal power uh, as well absolutely and i think that's such an um, important point for us to 
reflect on through history and today as well. Um, talking about a different aspect of the sort of debates that we saw around the Child Marriage Restraint Act, you also look at this uh, question of, quote-unquote, the Muslim and the category of the Muslim within the debates around this. Um, could you tell us in what ways um, the public debates on the Child Marriage Restraint Act in 1929 actually ended up rendering the Muslim into a political minority? Thanks uh, so much for that careful reading and that question. Um, so um, one of the things that happened during the passage of the Child Marriage Restraint Act of 1929 uh, is that a law that was intended as a matter of Hindu social reform, uh, the minimum age marriages that were being proposed were to apply to Hindus alone. Uh, when Harbala Sharda, who's an Arya Samaji reform, who propo- who's also a legislator in the Indian Legislative Assembly, uh, proposed uh, his Hindu child marriage bill that became the Child Marriage Restraint Act of 1929. Um, during the discussions and in its various reiterations, the law then became applicable to all communities living within the subcontinent. What happened um, at this time is that there was um, a fairly widespread uh, backlash from some Muslim organizations, by no means all, but also some Muslim legislators in the Indian Legislative Assembly who protested uh, the minimum age of marriage becoming applicable to Muslims as well. And they came up with what I consider fairly um, sort of uh, well, fairly well considered rationale for why they felt that the age of minimum age of marriage should not apply to Muslims, and that had to do primarily to do with the fact, and this is what they argued, that um, Muslim law in fact had stipulations that did protect Muslim child wives. Uh, And these were the options of puberty and discretion, which allowed a Muslim wife who had been married off as a in her young age to repudiate a marriage that had been contracted for her when she came of age or attained the age of puberty. Um, So. Basically, the argument was that this is a matter of Hindu social reform and there is no problem within the Muslim community and there is no reason for this law to be applicable to Muslims. What I'm interested in is the way in which the debates proceeded and in the way in which the Child Marriage Restraint Act became seen uh, as so much a matter of Indian modernity that the Muslim opposition to it came to constitute uh, what was a fairly reasonable, legally-based argument to be seen as a sign of the entire community's backwardness. So that was one of the ways in which there is a sort of representational um, minoritization, what I call, of the Muslim, right, as backward, as socially backward. There is also political minoritization that is very visible because despite the protests uh, and uh, requests for a revision to the law, what happens is that this law gets passed as an all India law that will be applicable to all communities. And it, to me, that was also a sign of how um, the flaws with, you know, the flaws we can begin to see at this very early moment 
of representational and democratic pol politics that's just beginning to take hold. India is still not independent, right? But there's some uh, we can we we are beginning to see how uh, the language of majorities and minorities, but also the fact of political majority and minority can make a difference. And what I'm able to trace in the book is how all Muslim objections are quite systematically marginalized and minoritized, right? So the religious community of Muslims becomes seen and sort of constituted as, as a political minority uh, in a very sort of striking uh, and problematic way or during these debates on the Child Marriage Restraint Act. And the third thing that I'm interested in is um, has to do with what I call the politics of childhood. Um, and that has to do with how we uh, sort of commonsensically understand uh, the distinction between childhood and adulthood, and as well as the distinction between, say, children and minors, as well as adults. And what I, and this is a sort of a more um, nuanced and maybe not entirely convincing uh, part of my argument. But what I try to argue is that the when the adult-child distinction becomes very naturalized to us, uh, it leads us to think of other races, other communities, other genders, other classes as akin to children or minors, and therefore less deserving of being heard. Uh, so what I write about in the book also is to urge us to think about how um, our, our sort of juridical or the legalistic understanding of what a child or a minor is, uh, allows us to sort of uh, minoritize entire communities. And in, in the example that I write about, it is mostly Muslims, but also Dalits. Uh, that certain other alternative sort of solutions to gender justice are seen as uh, necessarily backward, not as good, and so on, right? Lots for us to think about there, because definitely I think we don't uh, question where, you know, judging a community's progress on the basis of this age and gender justice factor actually comes from. And I think that's why this history and these histories are so important. Um, when we speak about the sort of debate around Muslims and the ways in which they were uh, minoritized politically and representationally in discourse, um, another important debate that we see at the time is around this tract uh, which is Rangila Rasool, which was published in India in 1924. Um, could you tell us again a little bit about that? Because I'm sure a lot of listeners uh, would not be familiar with that. And could you tell us about what kind of um, debates and protests it led to? So, uh, the, so the track that you're talking about, uh, Rangila Rasool, is... Uh, was again a sort of social reformist Arya Samaji tract, and it was and historians have written about it extensively as um, a sort of a major ingredient in what they call the tract wars. So a lot of these reformist organizations were producing uh, tracts that had a social reformist message, but th that also contained a veiled attack, actually not so veiled attack, <laughs> on other communities. Etc. Uh, and just to give your readers a bit of an idea of the kind of you know discourse that was uh, prevalent in this um, track, I'll just read a couple of lines from the track in translation that I also include in my book. 
Um, so Rangila Rasul, um, I'll just read some lines. Why did Muhammad betroth himself to this young girl who was a granddaughter to him at the point of age? Aisha bought her dolls with her and the 53-year-old bridegroom who occasionally joined in this child play. Is it not objectionable for a 53-year-old elder to play with children? Should not that be in another role and not as a husband? So the idea here is that Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, is being represented as a grand, as a grandfather figure who should have been a grandfather-like figure to his own wife. Uh, and this is sort of, and, and, and it is sort of written in the form of a satire. So at some points, there's uh, sort of, there's claims that, oh, we have so much to learn from the sexual virility uh, of this person who married so many times. Um, and, and, and at other times, very clearly, this sort of discourse, right, which is um, about um, basically representing the prophet of Islam as a, in, in language that renders him visible as a pedophile, right? Um, and uh, what I, so, and, and scholars have written about the sort of backlash or the, the you know, the riots broke out against the publication, the publication was banned, etc. And for reasons that you can see, because it was seen as a, a tract that was deliberately inciting and provoking uh, hatred against a community uh, of Muslims. And of course, there was uh, outrage on behalf of that community that was expressed, right? Uh, the reason why I chose to read uh, some of the content of this, because historians usually focus on the fallout of what happens, is because what's particularly interesting to me is the way in which age as well, like 53-year-old grandfather, right? As well as age difference, the age difference between him and Aisha uh, is being talked about, draws on this entire social reformist literature that is also prevalent at that time, uh, which is not directly inciting violence against any community, but this one is. Uh, so the reason why I read Rangila Rasul and it's in its detail is to show how it is actually um, just an exaggerated and more violent form of some of the ideas that are being presented about other communities in social, in more respectable social reformist literature at this time. Um, and the other reason why I read this is to again make that point about how um, age distinction and moralities that attach to it can become a way of making completely distinct political claims, right? That ultimately this really is, it, it, it's, it's seemingly or it's justified as, oh, you know, th this is being written because it's another intervention that allows us to see a not only why, you know, child marriage or age differentiated marriage is a problem, but it's also, you know, Muslims are being represented as um, sort of, the community that suffers more from this problem, even though child marriage has started had started out as a problem of social reform that concerned Hindus, the Hindu community more. Uh, but it also, you know, it but it go, goes to, you know, it's a, it's a good example for me about um, how sexual morality that is, and especially sexual morality when it comes to age, 
can become a way of inciting a political sentiment and even violence that is seemingly unrelated to the problem of child marriage that is being discussed. That's really interesting in terms of, uh, like you said, thinking about how this kind of sexual morality around age was invoked in other ways. Lastly, um, I think something which we found super interesting in terms of um, your work was to kind of look at how developments in the field of sexology actually um, affected the debate and arguments in favor of regulating uh, children's sexuality and child marriage in the 20th century. So could you tell us a little about this um, and the kind of impact that it had? Um, So sexology, again, um, is a new discipline at the time that we are talking about. So sexology is a discipline of scientific study of sex, which arises in the late 19th century, is taking hold in the 20th century. And, you know, in India and all around the world, that becomes a sort of scientific way of making uh, arguments for um, social reform, for women's rights, etc., right? Um, so in, in, in the question, you sort of posited, uh, sexology as, uh, allowing for a certain type of argument to be made, um, for regulating children's sexuality and child marriage. Uh, what is, what was fascinating, um, to me was how sexology was actually being used to make a case both for child marriage by some, um, by some uh, legislators in the Indian Assembly who were against the child marriage law uh, at the same time uh, at which um, sexology was being used to make an argument to regulate child marriages or to abolish it, right? So the way uh, sexology becomes um, so crucial to both sides of the debate is uh, the status of sexology as scientific and therefore removed from religious arguments, right? So both sides of the debate for and against child marriage legislation see sexology as a way of uh, making an argument by leaving behind the sort of religious arguments where you know people are looking to the scriptures for justification for certain minimum ages of marriage and so on. Actually, more, more than sexual um, maturity, the debates were around sex education. Right. So when when is a child going to be instructed on sex? So some of the what I noticed is that some of the arguments that will be made in the particular context of child marriage in India were using sort of more global uh, debates on uh, sex education and at what particular ages were children going through certain levels of sexual maturity? At what point of time were they going to be given access to knowledge about sex, etc.? And um, so th- th- those very sort of particular distinctions about age, so between uh, five and eight, a child can be taught uh, about sexual knowledge, but only as sort of information about the birds and bees and so on. And it was only in adolescence that um, children or adolescents could be taught about uh, human sexuality, etc. So those were the kinds of debate discussions that were um, informing uh, the debates around age of marriage in India as well. That's really interesting. And I think it definitely... Um also just immediately makes me think of the kind of discourse that we're seeing now around child sexual abuse and 
when is the right time to start talking to a child about sex and about you know which parts of their body it's okay for someone to touch and good touch and bad touch so i think it's really interesting if you look back historically and then reflect now and on some of the contradictions around these things too what is considered okay and what is not considered okay um if you're a child um and i think finally just if you could tell us a little bit about what kind of um inspired this work and because like i think you also make like complicated arguments around uh you know this idea of age in relation to uh, sexual relations and why we look at childhood and uh, children just like categorically questioning those so if you could tell us just a little bit about where this idea came from as well so i think i came to the i i came to some of the questions that i ask in the book partly from the present uh and i think with the debates around consent and age of marriage that continue to be so important in india today uh, in a way that i don't need to tell you but also the concern in india today about um the continued manufacturing of muslims as a political minority right and as objects of increasingly uh you know violent um you know as as objects who are as muslim bodies as receiving physical violence in a way that we are not used to and i think this is this sounds like a peculiar sort of rationale for writing a book about child marriage but i think the present did influence the way in which i began to read some of the debates from the past that i was reading um so i think i'm drawing on a, a lack of comfort with the certainties that we have about gender justice and sort of backwardness when it comes to women's rights and women's issues uh and combining that with trying to see how those certainties actually can very quickly um lead to problematic entailments that we don't often see as connected so other scholars such as charu gupta whose work uh, some of your listeners might be you know interested in have written about how sexual mores uh all, you know in the early 20th century constituted different communities and and how um the regulation of interactions between hindus and muslims both sexual and other was very much sort of tied up with uh, sexual normativity right so so it's coming from that tradition it's coming a little bit from the present it's coming from the need to think about consent at this moment very very carefully um to think about consent in more uh, in in sort of broader terms than what we are used to by pointing to some of the problems with which the way we think about consent which is completely tied up in my mind with a particular sort of liberal juridical tradition that has been uh, constituted as the secular law that we know in india today right and and so it it comes from a place of wanting to be critical about sort of um the certainties that we have about uh, the ways in which we see consent um the way in which we see gender justice etc um it also comes from uh, an interest in um thinking about how social moralities or sexual morality always 
already has a political content so with with you know which has its pros as well as its cons so i think it comes from a place of feminist self critique to a certain extent as well as well as a desire to understand um the present and how we came to be where we are where um political the political vilification of certain communities as well as the you know the sexual mores that we cherish and we push seem to be so closely entwined and i think um i i think one of the ways of thinking about it is to think about what's at stake now if we were to admit that you know we are living in in india uh, that we have uh, you know a hindu nationalist state if you want to accept that why is it that uh, interventions to protect muslim women to protect hindu women have taken on so much of an importance for us now why raise the age of marriage again now why is there so much at stake here why sort of look at um you know uh muslim law why this desire to protect the muslim uh woman from muslim men and i think these are the kinds of questions that sort of slip into the way we look at the past as well uh one of the things that i do in my book and since you asked me why i came to write the book the way i did is what i call and i won't go into details of it because it's a uh, fairly sort of <laughs> sort of theoretically and historiographically driven argument and w- which i calls reading sideways and that is precisely about admitting how the how a historian's present actually affects how we read the past and i think that is something that is good to be upfront about uh because the ways in which we have been writing about child marriage were different in the 70s the 90s and the present now in the 2020s and i think it needs to be and i think it's the present is allowing us to see sort of settled questions of what is child marriage or what were these debates on child marriage really about in a completely different way in the present and that's the note we ended our conversation with dr ishita on we hope this podcast gave you much to think about the ideas of sexuality age of consent and child marriage through these very interesting glimpses into our history We release a new episode of our podcast every Monday so be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios. The production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films.